Hey, guess what? You shouldn't treat anything you hear on this podcast as specific financial advice for you. We're not financial advisors. We're just two guys having a chat about what Tony does for him, works for him, may not work for you. Before you take any of these ideas and put them into practice, we highly recommend you sit down with a registered financial advisor and get some specific financial advice for your particular circumstances and objectives. Boom. Well, here we are again, QAV uh, podcast. Welcome back. Tony, what did you want to talk to us about this week? What, what's what's going on in the mind of of rich white people this week, Tony? <laughs> <laughs> oh, happy happy birthday, by the way, for, for uh, last week, mate. Yeah, uh, thank you. I, be- I believe uh, the angels got together to do a private little show for you. Yeah, oh, just me and another 5,000 other people at the Opera House. Yeah, it was, it was a great concert. Really good. That's pretty much your golfing buddies, right, isn't it? The 5,000 people. Um, really, was it good? Can you have an Angels concert without Doc Neeson? I, I'm, I'm, I can't see that happening, quite honestly. It's like having the Divinals without Chrissy Amphlett. I mean, uh, or Enix says without Michael Hutchins. I don't get it. Queen without Freddie Mercury. Is it, does, it, does it really hold up? Yeah, it did. Um, I get what you're saying, uh, but they had Dave Gleeson from the Screaming Jets. Uh, front them and he was pretty good yeah but it's basically a cover band well yeah cover orchestra cover band cover okay. orchestra so yeah definitely <laughs> right but, but I, I just love bands with um with backing horns it just really kicks along the rock and roll it's great yeah whatever happened to that rock bands used to have backing horns and then they just i don't know decided it was they didn't want to share the money as much what, what, what's going on <laughs> well, are there any rock bands around these days yeah, that's a good point. I see uh, Mick Jagger just had heart surgery, and uh, maybe, maybe can, would you go see the Stones without Mick? Saw Mick by himself. Well, see, that's different. I'd go see. I'd go see Keith just by himself. Yeah. I'm a big Keith Keith and Charlie fan, man. To me, Keith and Charlie are the Stones. Mick's Mick's great, but he's uh, but yeah, I won't pay four hundred bucks to go see the Stones, man. I just I think that's uh, that's just wrong. Well, you, did you you've read the. The biographies of well, Keith's autobiography, and then there was a good one that came out on Mick. And uh, there's that story in there where, at some stage, Mick's out front saying, um, "Ladies and gentlemen, you know, give it up for my band." <laughs> and after the concert, they're back in their hotel rooms and they're all enjoying a, a drink and got their hangers on around. And Charlie Watts comes downstairs from his room in his suit, walks up to Mick and punches him in the nose and says. <laughs> Never forget, you're fronting my band. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't remember that story. I did read Keith's uh, autobiography. And the great thing about Keith's autobiography is you can't read it without hearing Keith's voice in your head uh, because it's written like he talks. Anyway, people didn't didn't come here to listen to us talk about the Rolling Stones. But happy birthday, nonetheless. Thank you. They're rich white people. The the Stones? Yeah. Or the people listening? Well, yes, they are. Probably both. So what's uh, what's been on your mind this week, Kino? Well, I thought we should talk a bit about the yield curve inversion. Not that it's been on my mind. <laughs> it hasn't really been on my mind that much. I, I, I think I saw that in a Star Trek Next Generation episode. It's like, number one, prepare the yield curve and yield curve inversion to fight the Borg. 
Yeah, is right. that what we're talking about? Yeah, Ghostbusters. You can't cross the streams. That's right. Uh, yeah. Uh. Yeah, so um, I wanted to just talk about it mainly to reinforce something uh, which Ben Graham and Warren Buffett always said, which is tune out the noise. There's there's always a there's always a, like reporters always have to report something, right? And the latest thing that they they've been buzzing about in business circles in the last week is that the ten year bond yield in the U.S. is now uh, lower than the three month bond yield, um, and when that has happened in the past, like, well, probably 25, 30 years, uh, it's always predated a recession within the next nine to 18 months. So everyone's sort of, everyone's saying, well, we're going to have a recession. What's going to happen with the US and its deal with China? What's, why is the Fed putting rates up when we're going to have a recession? Blah, 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 blah. Um, I think it's, well, just to explain a little bit first, that the, the theory is that if you're going to take out a 10 year, bond, um, you should get rewarded more than if you take out a short-term bond. That kind of makes logical sense. You're committing your money for a long time. You want a better return than if you can get it back in three months' time. If if that's not happening, that's usually a sign that people are buying long-dated bonds because they're worried about the economy, and that's a, that's a traditional safe haven. It's like putting your money in the bank basically for 10 years because you're worried the, um, the share market's going to go down or the economy's going to go backwards and you won't be able to get a return somewhere else and property prices are dropping and all that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an indicator that, uh, that the smart money doesn't think that, or the dumb money, doesn't think that uh, <laughs> the economy's going to be that great in the future. Um, it's worth noting that there's been an equal number of yield inversions in the Australian economy and in the last 25 years that hasn't predicted any recessions because we haven't had a recession in the last 25 years. So it's a very simple indicator. Um, works in the States doesn't work here. Why do they pick a three-month short-term yield bond rather than a 12-month short-term yield bond? It, it does smack a bit of, you know, doing regression testing to make it fit what you're trying to forecast. Um, but yeah, look, it's, it's been a topic of conversation. Um, and, and these things become echo chambers, right? Because people are already taking their money out of the share market on the basis that there's a recession coming and it becomes self-fulfilling in some respects. The alert investor is going to still say to themselves, well, I still think this company is good value and it's a quality company and now it's cheaper. I'm going to buy it. So, um, it, I think personally, I think it pays to, to tune out the noise and, uh, and just go about the pragmatic business of, of analysing, you know, undervalued stocks and and buying them when they're cheap. So that's that's really fascinating to me, and I want to see if you can explain some of these bits in more detail. So, what kind of investor is going to lock their money up in a ten-year bond? That sounds like a, a fairly uh, unsophisticated kind of investment. Am I missing something? Oh, no, no, no. These are usually very sophisticated investors. And, of course, the bonds are tradable, so um, they can always sell them. They don't have to stay in the bond for 10 years, although they can. But it's typically what, what happens in a lot of uh, businesses, a lot of um, investment funds uh, is – well, let me take an example I know. So, for example, when I, when I was working for Loyalty Pacific, I was a CFO there, which was the company that runs the Flybys program – we would take uh, – people would use their flybys cards at, 
at a service station or a Coles or on their credit card, they'd obtain points. At the time that they would uh, transfer that, those details to Loyalty Pacific, the relevant company would be charged for those points. So pretty much soon after the transaction occurred, the points all had a, a price and Coles or Shell or NAB would be charged for those points when they were earned. But then it would take, uh, those points had up to a, up to three years to accumulate, um, and, you know, become a meaningful balance so someone could redeem them for a product or a flight or whatever. And that's when flybys would have to pay out the airline or, um, department store that the product came from that the person's redeemed. And so, you know, it was, it was mandated as part of the, um, part of the strategy of Loyalty Pacific that we had to take that money for three years and invest it in high grade long term bonds. And that's, that's pretty usual for, say, insurance companies who are doing the same sort of thing. They're taking a premium, but only ever paying out sometime in the future, especially for life insurance companies, which could be decades in the future. But it's also, um, there are plenty of, uh, fund managers around there who, uh, when they talk about, um, having a cash reserve in their portfolio, they're really buying a long-term bond, um, which they, which has all the same attributes of cash, but it gives a better interest rate than putting it in the bank. How much better? Not a whole lot better. I mean, the yield on a 10-year bond now, I think, is around, well, it was, it was 3% and it, it dropped down into the high two. So I'm guessing it's going to be around 2.75, something like that at the moment. Um, bank, yeah, you, you, at call deposits giving you about 1%, I think, at the bank at the moment. You might get two if you put your money, well, if you lock your money away in a term deposit. It's a, it's a similar sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But they but they're tradable, you said. So if you want to get your cash back, you can sell that bond on the bond market. Right, that's right. The, the funny thing about the about the bonds at the moment is that they are um, they're yielding such a small amount that you kind of wonder who's going to buy it off you. Um, you probably only find there's there's a market for them. Well, there is a market for them now, but you probably find that they'll become more attractive to investors when they when the price of the bond drops, which increases the yield. If that makes sense, you always got to think in a reverse way when you're thinking about bonds. If the bond was issued by, say, the US government and initially it cost $100 and it yielded 3% a year, um, if I, if I sell it to someone for more than $100, they're still getting the original $3 from the, from the US government. But because they paid more as a yield to them, it's, it's lower than 3%. And conversely, yeah. if, if, uh, in the future, uh, I sell it to someone for say seventy dollars, then they're getting a, a much higher yield than three percent. Yeah, and so that's how they trade. Yeah, so the fact that the yields are low at the moment means that people are buying lots of them, which is pushing the price up for the bonds. And in like lots of places in the world, like uh, in in lots of European countries, the yields are negative. So people are actually taking a bath just to tie their money up in somewhere that they see as safe. I just find that crazy. So from a QAV perspective, when you're looking at your portfolio, you're not really that concerned about whether the market's going up or going down. How, how does a recession affect you? I mean, you said actually Australia hasn't had one for 25 years and you only invest in the Australian share market, so you've never had to worry about it. But in theory, if Australia did have one, how would it affect you? Well, it, it, it would depend on what the shares did. So if you recall, part of our checklist is to look at sentiment. Is the share price going up or going down? Uh, so for example, even though we didn't have a recession in the GFC, uh, we came pretty close and, and shares dropped dramatically. So I was a seller in that environment 
when it started, and I was a buyer back um, when the share sentiment started t- to turn uh, a year or so later. So I, I'm I'm much more pragmatic. I'm waiting I'm waiting to see what what happens to the actual share prices, um, you know, and and their future. Uh, what I think their future earnings will be, and what I think their future price will be. Um, and then I'm happy to be a seller when those start to turn down and a buyer when they start to turn up. Huh. So you don't just hold through the downturn. You actually are active. Where, at what point do you decide that it's a good time to sell or a good time to buy? You just uh, keep doing your spreadsheets? Yeah, I keep doing the spreadsheets. I do pay attention to that three-point trend we talked about. That's a pretty good indicator. So if you start to see them... Um, Prior to the GFC, shares had a very good run, so they were all going up. And then um, around 2007, they all started coming off, and you could see that trend line was broken. Um, and that's not, I mean, that's only one thing you look at, but it's an important thing. And but the, at the same time that was happening, everyone was forecasting doom and gloom and lowering their profit forecasts for the future, for the next year. Um, and that's one thing that we look at is the uh, intrinsic value for next year. And they were all dropping as well, so the scores were going lower. So scores were going lower, trend was coming off, I was a seller. Um, not always. Some, some, ex- some stocks I took, I, I just held on to all the way through. They weren't, you know, uh, some of the stocks weren't that affected by the, by the uh, GFC, but a lot of them were. Do you want to explain to people again the three-point trend line? Yeah, so very, very simple um, piece of analysis. If you look at a graph of a share price and say it's going from the bottom left to the top right, um, you'll see uh, a number of peaks and troughs even though it's climbing. Uh, and if you're looking at uh, a share that's going up, we're looking at the troughs. So the three the three points, if you start with a ruler at the lowest point um, and then put the ruler across the next uh, two troughs that, that form a line with that bottom trough, you get you'll get three in a row. And as soon as the share price goes down and it breaks that line of troughs, of the three troughs, that's a, a sell signal. And the reverse happens on the buy side. If the share price is going from the top left to the bottom right of the graph, you're looking at the, the, the highest peak and then looking at a, a line that's going down and is then touching the next two uh, peaks on that downward trend. And when you see the share price break up above that, that's a buy signal. Right. Yeah, and and like and these are just part of the checklist. Like I said, um, uh, it's it's a pretty good indicator, but you don't want to spend your life. You, know, you don't want to make <laughs> uh, big investment decisions based on a graph and a line and where it's going. You've got to also do the checklist as well. Right. Hmm. So you would you would look at the rest of the metrics and make a decision about over what like what time frame. Would you then be looking at uh, it's it's financial health for the next twelve months, next twenty four months, next next twelve? Usually, that's I found that to be the most accurate data. Usually, a lot of companies, probably the majority of companies, will give you a consensus or will give you a sorry a forecast for what they think their earnings will be in twelve months' time, and that's you know hotly watched by uh, by fund managers, and they're always asking for it. Some companies don't because they don't want to be held to it. Um, most do, and if they, either way, if they don't, there's, there's uh, certainly for the bigger companies, lots of information out there about what brokers think the consensus is for their earnings going forward. And, and I trust the 12-month one more than the longer-term ones. 
And if there's a lot of doom and gloom in the market, Tony, how does it change your behaviour with your portfolio? Are you checking your companies more often than you normally would? Are you putting more time and effort in or does it stay pretty much the same? It stays pretty much the same. Um, again, I'm still focused. I'm, I'm busiest when the companies are reporting, so twice twice a year in Australia, and focusing on the figures. And that doesn't change during good markets, bad markets, dollar high, dollar low, interest rates high, interest rates low. It's it's. I'm still guided by the figures more than what the sentiment is in the market. So it's still around those twice yearly reporting periods that you're doing most of your work. Yeah, that's right. Yep, but like it's and it's, let's. I mean, it's also. I mean, it's, you've got to. We spoke about behavioural economics before, and you've got to be, you know, um, you've got to be able to tune out the noise. I mean, as a, I remember there was a great cartoon I saw when the GFC was in full flight, and it said uh, it was a guy driving down a street, and and the first billboard said, "End of the world, five hundred meters," and a billboard in the dis- in the distance said, uh, "Market boom, one mile." So it's like you know, it's. The market sort of vacillates on short-term thinking and sentiment, but it always mm-hmm. uh, bounces back at some stage. You know, I did a, a podcast on uh, Friday last week. Ray and I started a series on the anti-vax movement on our Bullshit Filter series. And as I was researching it uh, prior to doing the shows, the thing I kept thinking about was a, a lot of these sorts of issues, I think, come down to two things, epistemology and heuristics which are big words I like to say as often as possible because it makes me look smart. But, um, you know, over the years I've come to the conclusion that a lot of the ways that people navigate the world are based on where they get their knowledge from and, and who they get their knowledge from, what sources they look to, what sources they trust. I think that's part of their heuristics, the shortcuts to deciding what what side of a an argument you're going to end up on who do you look to who do you trust um, what uh, what what sources of information do you find to be valuable versus those that lead you astray when you're when you're looking at market information uh, are there any sorts of sources that you rely upon people that you turn to you look to apart from Buffett yeah no for sure um I'm a fan of Alan Cole's reporting. Uh, he's been around in the business press for yonks. Uh, I think he was an editor of The Age at some stage and uh, was the business reporter for the ABC for a long time. And now he runs a, a company called The Constant Investor. Um, I think that's just been bought out by Investmart, so their name may change soon. But, yeah, I like I like to listen to him and, and read what he has to say about things. Um, and he was talking about the yield curve inversion last week and pretty much saying, well, I th- I think that, you know, it hasn't worked uh, as a guide to Australia's recessions. But, you know, who knows? A broken clock's right twice a day. Um, so, yeah, Cola. Um, there's another guy called Roger Montgomery I don't mind listening to. Uh, he wrote a book called Valuable, Valuable, and um, much much in the style of Buffett, and he runs a, uh, a share fund called the Montgomery Fund. And then the Stock Doctor people put out um, uh, various you know, vid- short videos and emails from time to time. Uh, and they're, they're of the same opinion that you tune out the noise and you, you know, as Buffett says, you, um, you be f- fearful when people are greedy and you be greedy when people are fearful. So, 
<laughs> that people listen to. But you're right. I mean, it's good to have a framework, and and uh, and Charlie Munger writes a lot about that. He calls it the lattice work, where you you should you should always read widely, and uh, and approach things not just straightforward, but look at it from other points of view. So you know, the market's as much a psychology um, experiment as it is a a business experiment. So. And a marketing experiment. So read, read widely and, and, and read in interdisciplinary subjects and, and develop a framework that you can run things through. Yeah, but that, I mean, and that's going to help over time for you to develop your own framework. But um, in the short term, when things are happening, big things are happening in the world, it's good to have people who you can trust as much as you can trust anyone. I mean, I, I said on that show last week, I don't trust anyone, including myself, but 100%, but it's it's good to know that there are sources that have a track record of not leading you astray. Yeah, look, you're right. I should add one more name to that list, a guy called Jeff Wilson, who runs uh, Wilson Asset Management. Uh, he also does uh, put out good emails um, as well. Yeah, I think, I think um, it's... I find it good. I mean, I sit here by myself doing this analysis at home. It's always good to have other people to listen to and, and to test what you're thinking against. But you've also got to guard against it becoming a bit of an echo chamber. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you don't just want to you just don't want to be agreeing with the same set of people all the time. So it's it is worthwhile listening to other sources too, and then just just trying to even in your own mind debate what they're saying with what you know. And uh, your opinion mm-hmm. might change, but yeah, oftentimes it doesn't. But it's you can't just be in the same echo chamber all the time. It's like this yield curve inversion. Everyone's going on about that. It just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You'll you'll all say you'll all say yes and say nice things about each other as you fall off the cliff. Yeah, but in the real world, these are complex topics like whether or not you should get vaccinations or whether or not climate change is a real thing or gun control. These are all very complex uh, scenarios with lots of intelligent people on both sides making their own arguments. And for the average Jill and Joe out there that are already working 60, 70 hour weeks and have families and have other things going on, they don't have the luxury of sitting down and spending a great deal of time researching and thinking deeply or all the educational background or the skills background. I mean, it, so I said on our anti-vax show, I don't have the luxury of going to university for four or five years and becoming an epidemiologist so I can do my own double-blind, placebo, randomised trials on vaccinations and then be able to have the, the skill set to read the reports of other people who do those sorts of things. That's never going to happen. So I need to trust someone. I need to go somewhere and get you know some guidance on these sorts of complex issues. Why you're my money guy? That's why I go to you. You're you're the money guy. Yeah, well, that's, you're right. I mean, but that's in that circumstance, you trust the person who has been an epidemiologist and gone to university for seven or eight years and done the tests and done the research and published and all the rest of it. So. I mean, I think we're lucky that we have some institutions that you can trust like that. You, you still have to be sceptical. I did listen to your podcast this morning, actually, when I was out before. It was very good. Um, and you're right. But I think, I think, uh, I don't know if it's just coinciding with the rise of populism or what, but, you know, there's, there's so many people now. We've almost taken skepticism too far. 
you have to be skeptical, but it doesn't mean if someone stands up and says, I know more about medicine than a, a medical, medically trained doctor that you believe them. You've still got to uh, undertake your own research when you encounter something new like that. Right, but if you have medical doctors on both sides giving you conflicting ideas, which one do you believe in? Yeah, that's a hard one, isn't it? I mean, all I could say is you've got to read what they say or listen to what they say and then try and do your own research to uh, to work it out. But are they? I mean, I haven't heard of any medical doctors who are saying you shouldn't vaccinate your kid. Yeah, I mean, there they're, they're are fringe ones. I mean, there are small numbers uh, of fringe people that will say anything, right? Right, yeah, like scientists who deny climate change. Exactly, mm. exactly. Okay, so getting back to people you trust and, and methodologies you trust and, and what happens in downturns and upturns, Wait, let me ask you a separate question. When when a downturn happens, you said during the GFC you were, you were a seller. What do you do with your cash in that situation? Do you put it under your bed and, and guard it with a gun or <laughs> where do you put it? No, I mean, we... We generally always have some level of debt. So the first thing that happens is I pay down the mortgage. And, you know, that's like getting a 5% return a year because you're not paying the the, the interest rate. Uh, so that's better than putting it in the bank. But if we don't have any debt, it would just go in the bank because I would – I mean, the GFC was a probably one of the longest um, bear markets we've had in a long time. We tend to have fairly short bear markets that last, you know, 6 to 18 months. The GFC went for a couple of years. But I would expect that I'd be able to start redeploying the funds after a sell-off within six to twelve months. So why does a why does a rich guy have debt? Explain that one. Uh, well, it's it's what I call good debt. So you boost your returns by by leveraging them. So bad debt is where you go into debt to buy a depreciating asset, like a car, for example. Take out a loan to buy a car. When I was seventeen, Tony, I took out a loan and bought a, uh, Le- a Gibson Les Paul and uh, a Marshall hundred watt Marshall head and amp. Um, what, what 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 do you think about that? <laughs> oh, gee. And that's probably stolen fairly soon afterwards too, and you had to get down to the pawn shop and get it back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I did need silly. to sell it. I, I I did need to sell it at one point when I yeah I lost my job and I ran out of money. I had to oh, sell it to pay the rent, and still had to pay back the loan too. So yeah, that was yeah. that was I get, good. I guess you're not seeing it as a depreciating asset. You probably had stars in your eyes, and you're going to be the next Keith Richards. I did. Or yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought I was going to be a, a rock star. Yeah, yeah. So so that's that's example of bad debt. Um, I think if you if you're borrowing to to buy a house, that's kind of in between. Like it's it's good in that it's an appreciating asset, and most people won't have enough money to buy a house, so you're going to leverage it and pay it off over time. That's all. That's all good. But ideally, what I I would uh, what we did was um, when we uh, borrowed to to buy a house, we were able to pay it off in a reasonably short period of time, like maybe over sort of five to ten years. But then as we were paying it off, we'd redraw it and put that money into the share market. Um, and what we were finding was like it wasn't too hard to find shares where their dividend yield covered the the interest payment on the mortgage and it was like a free investment in the stock market. You still had to find shares that were going up because you don't want to be caught out underwater with your mortgage. But um, over time that, that happened and that was one of the things that, that kind of uh, set us in motion. So I think Having a certain amount of debt is good. I try and stay under uh, a third, so 33%. Um, if it does go a bit above that, I'll pay it down. 
And if it goes below that, I might take out some more. So, um, yeah, but like any good business, if you're not, you know, you can service some debt. You don't want to take on too much and you don't want to have too little. So in a downturn, you would uh, sell, take the cash, put it into some debt, draw down your debt, and then wait until you're ready to get back in the market again. And then how? Then you just have a, a facility yeah. on your mortgage where you can just draw that, draw those funds back out again and reinvest them. Correct. Yeah. Back. Uh, it's changed now, but back then, um, I think you still get these kinds of mortgages. They were, they were basically an overdraft, so you paid one percent more in interest, uh, and you could always. Just put money in, money out at any, any time at all. So we, we basically used it as our checking account. So as our pays would go into that account, pay down the mortgage for the month and we, we draw down to, um, to use it for our living expenses. Uh, and over time that, that was a, a way of saving money because it mounted up, especially if you're getting a, like we, like we did, we, we get the occasional bonus, which would pay it off, um, would pay a fair bit of it off. Um, and then we could redraw it and put it in the market. Uh, these days I've got a standard type mortgage, a uh, standard type mortgage, um, which does allow us to redraw. So, uh, it's, it's doesn't work quite the same as the overdraft where you can use it like a check account and put money in, put money out. You've actually got to accumulate, um, a capital repayment before you can draw it out again, if that makes sense. So it's basically a mortgage with a drawdown facility. I have no idea what you just said. No, that's okay. okay. So what, we used to have an overdraft, which cost us 1% more, and now we have a, a standard home right. loan with the extra facility we can draw down from time to time. So one more thing I wanted to ask you today. Uh, we've got a federal election coming up, rumour has it, in the next month or so. Uh, how do things like that affect your investment decisions? Do you, do they, do you pay them any attention? Not really, no. I mean, it's an interesting, interesting thing. I, I think... I'm a little bit concerned about some of the policies that Labor is proposing in terms of taking away negative gearing and taking away franking credit rebates. But uh, at this stage, I haven't changed any investment strategies because of that. And I think it's it's important as an investor to wait for things to happen and then react to them quickly as they happen rather than trying to predict them. Um, because first of all, even though Labor's odds on to win, they may not. And secondly, they may not control the Senate and the Senate may not pass those um enact those two pieces of legislation. So it's kind of silly now trying, I mean, a lot of people are trying to find um, stocks out there which don't, which um, have high yields without paying franking credits. So for example, stocks that are uh, New Zealand companies that also have a listing in Australia, they don't have franking credits in New Zealand. So they have a high, higher overall yield and you don't get the franking credit. So people are starting to buy those kinds of stocks, but I'm going to wait and see what happens. And then, um, and then do the analysis and just adjust as it happens. Can you explain the franking credit thing for me again? Yeah, sure. So this was under, the, the, I guess, the irony of all this. I'm pretty sure this came in under Paul Keating, who was a Labor Prime Minister. He said that uh, because businesses have already paid their 30% tax on a profit and then it pays a dividend to the investor, the investor pays tax on that dividend because it's income to the investor, but they get a credit for 30%. So, for example, someone like me who's on the top marginal rate of taxation, I'm paying well, probably near enough to 50% these days when you factor in all the different special levies that get, get added onto the top marginal rate. But I, I'll then get a credit for the tax that's been paid by the company. And it's, it's different depending on your tax bracket. What the Labor Party now is saying is that uh, for people who, who um, are on, on low tax thresholds, if they don't have... Um, 
enough tax to offset the credit against. Currently, they get a they get a cash rebate from the government, and it's it's the current Labor policy going into the election that they're going to stop that, which I think is a bit ass about because people are if they're going to if they're going to lose income like that, are going to rely more on the pension, and it's going to cost the government in the long run anyway. So, I'm not seeing how they're going to save much money through that um, through that change. All right, so you pay you're paying attention to some of these things, but uh, doesn't really have a big impact on you day to day. You'll wait to see what happens in the election and then uh, review. Yeah, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for things to happen. I mean, the classic the classic saying about um, economics is that you know economists have correctly predicted nine out of the last six recessions, and it's <laughs> the same same sort of thing with trying to predict what's going to happen when someone gets into government if they get in and then has to get legislation through the Senate. It's, it's very hard to predict. So you wait for it to happen. You wait to see what the impact is on the companies you invest in. You go from there. Anything else you wanted to throw into the show this week, Kona? I will. Having having just uh, poo-pooed economists, um, and I, I always like to, when people say, oh, no, economists are really good, I always ask them to name a, an economist who's a billionaire, and uh, they, go, they go quiet. <laughs> so economists are great at telling you what happened and, and working things out and, and giving you all the theory, but they're terrible at predicting. Um, but, but having poo-pooed them, I will give you my three predictions for a recession. Over the years, I've noticed three simple things that uh, affect the economy in Australia, at least. One is high interest rates. Uh, the other one is high petrol prices. And the third, the third one is a high dollar. So when all those three things happen, we tend to do it tough in the economy. At the moment, the only one of those three which is happening is high petrol prices. So the glass to me is two thirds full. So I'm not seeing a recession soon. I, I can't see interest rates going up. They're likely to come down. I can't see the dollar going up and who knows about petrol prices. So I kind of see the economy as two thirds, the glass being two thirds full going forward. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's interesting. That's your, that's your heuristic. That's my heuristic. Yeah. 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 But I wouldn't call myself an right. economist and I don't, I don't rely on it. It's just, just, just really for interest, I guess. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you, Kano. Talk to you next week. Thanks, Cam. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the QAV podcast. Remember, as always, don't take anything you heard on this as financial advice for you. These are just concepts, ideas, methodologies, Tony's personal thinking. Uh, Before you do any investing, go out and get proper financial advice. And if you'd like to contact us, go to our website, qavpodcast.com.au. Send us an email, suggestions for future topics you might want Tony to talk about. Um, And you can find us in any podcast player out there, Apple, Google, Spotify. Subscribe to updates. My name's Cameron Riley. Thanks for listening. Be nice to each other.